So uh, my my friend uh, Matt, he's actually on our board, Matt Decord. Uh, he got married yesterday. I don't know if you know Matt, uh, but it was really kind of cool. Uh, the, it was a it was a really joyful ceremony, and it, it was funny. My wife and I went to the reception at the end, and she's not feeling good. Plus, we're old, and <clears throat> it's like it's like eight thirty, and we're like, let's go home. We're like, yeah. What is it like midnight? It's eight thirty. Woo, you know. <laughs> But apparently, right after we left, the whole party started shutting down anyway. So we're like, we leave, and it's like, party's over. It normally never happens that way, I just want you to know. It's like Aaron's gone, now it's time! (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Today is the last day to sign up for Redemption Groups, if you're interested in doing that. Uh, Redemption Groups, it's it's almost like counseling and community with one another, refocusing on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if, if you have gone through something in your life or maybe you've been hurt or struggling with something to understand how Jesus takes you through all those things, uh, it, it'd be great to have you go through one of the redemption groups. Uh, there are packets in the back. You can grab one and fill one out. Redemption groups is nine weeks long. So if you're going to do it, you got, it is a time commitment in there. But uh, I'll tell you, people who go through it, it's just amazing on the back and understanding better the gospel and who Jesus is. So that's awesome. Uh, Welcome to Element. If you're new, my name, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes in all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside, you will get some notes that go a little bit deeper as well as some questions that go deeper into what we're talking about. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and then Events and Uversion will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, and all that goes along with today's message. I want you guys to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I feel like this message is long, but after last service, I think it was short. So I don't know. Maybe I just feel long-winded, but I'm not today. Uh, this is uh, Matthew chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. It says, But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, my servant will be healed, for I too am a man under authority. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who live under and in your authority, that we would find great hope in our lives because our lives are found in who you are. We ask that you would grow us in the people you call us to be, the people you intend for us to be, and that all that we have and all that we do would be for your glory, because in that, your people live in great joy. Amen. Have a seat. So we're doing a series that's going to take us right through Easter, where we focus on the authority of Jesus. And when I say that, you think, well, this sounds like a topical series. A topical series is where you take a topic and you look at it a bunch of different ways. It's not. This is an expository series where you look through verse by verse through the scriptures. Where we are is Jesus has just preached the most beloved sermon ever preached called the Sermon on the Mount. And at the end, people are amazed at the authority of his teaching. And what Matthew goes on to show you in Matthew 8 and 9 is Jesus authority by what he actually did. So first he preaches in this authority and then he goes and he shows us by what he actually does. Matthew 5 through 7 is where you find the Sermon on the Mount. There are great words with wonderful teaching, but the Sermon on the Mount is not the end of the Bible. Imagine that, right? What happens after this is Jesus will continue to speak. Jesus will continue to heal. He'll stick his head in a cave and call a dead body out. He'll spit on the ground and make mud and rub it in somebody's eyes, tell them to go and wash and they can see. The first thing Jesus does after the Sermon on the Mount is he's walking down the hill, the hill and he heals someone with leprosy. Uh, Matthew 8, verses 2 and 3 says, Behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. It's like saying if it's in your will and if 
you want to, you can do this. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will, meaning I want to be clean. Jesus touches this man who has probably not been touched in years. And the amazing thing, it is God who touches this man and makes him whole. So what you see is the authority of Jesus to cleanse people, to remake them and make them new again. Now today, we're going to talk about authority a little bit more in depth. I'm going to keep going back and talking about the same thing over and over and over. You're going to be like, man, will this guy just stop saying the same things? No, I won't. We're going to do that a lot today. Uh, So what I want you to do is open to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. It's important to understand for us Jesus' authority because if we do not understand his authority, we will not put our lives in his more than capable hands. Ross Cochran calls a section we're going to look at today when my faith and his authority collide because they don't always coincide. And again, it said Jesus just healed somebody with leprosy who is an outcast. Jesus says, keep this quiet, show yourself to the priest. He will reintroduce you into community. And Matthew chapter 8, 5 to 13, what we're looking at today, it's going to emphasize Jesus' spoken words that by his command, he's able to heal the sick. It's also going to be a little brief lesson on faith. And this faith is going to be demonstrated by what's known as a centurion. This is a Roman soldier, a Gentile. It's a non-Jew. Kind of shows you where the gospel of Matthew Matthew is eventually going. So Matthew chapter 8, uh, verse 5 says, When he entered Capernaum, and I know I'm going to stop right here because I'm like a kid learning how to drive a stick shift. i got to like this the entire time. But Capernaum is like Jesus' adopted hometown. Okay, Capernaum was a good-sized place on the shores of a lake. It's a natural site for fishing. Peter's home was here because Peter was a fisherman. Next week, you'll see how Jesus goes and stays with Peter there. Uh, Capernaum is also on a main road that led down to Damascus. So it would start in the north, go through Capernaum, through the hills and passages to the Jezreel Valley, and there it would connect to more passes and eventually go to Egypt. Here's a map. And because it goes all the way down to Egypt and back up, it becomes a main thoroughfare for caravans and traders and military. Capernaum is right on this highway, so it had a military presence, hence the centurion that's in the town. The centurion's the guy that would have to break heads to keep people in line. No one is supposed to disrupt at this time what is known as the Pax Romana, which is the Roman peace. Anybody who tried to do something against the peace, they would find themselves dead. Because that's how you keep the peace. Anybody who wants to go against it would die. The centurion, as the name suggests, is an officer over a hundred soldiers. That would mean there's probably a sizable military presence in Capernaum. Capernaum is also the home of a guy named Levi, who we call Matthew, who wrote the account that we're looking at today. Matthew is a tax collector because when you're in a large thoroughfare with a lot of people, the government always wants to get its money. It's why you buy stuff on the internet now from Amazon and they charge you tax because the government wants their money. If you fill out your taxes, as you get to a place now in your taxes and it will say, did you buy anything out of state? Because they want you to tell them so they can get their money. It's always been the same. Government always wants their taxes. So you had these tax collectors and they'd be backed up by these Roman soldiers, which you might call thugs. Be like, you know, you want to pay your taxes, you want some protection, say hello to my little friend. Right, right? And it's, here comes the Roman centurion. And they t- collect taxes and tariffs from people who live there, as well as people who just pass through the region. Neither the Romans nor the tax collectors would have been accepted by the Jewish population. Okay? So Matthew 8, 5 again. 
When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward appealing to him. Now, there are going to be two different accounts of this story, one in the Gospel of Luke and one here in Matthew. In Luke, it tells you this is actually a delegation of Jewish elders who come on behalf of the centurion. The centurion could have been standing there with him, but he might have wanted these guys to talk to Jesus because if a Jew talks to a Jew, it might go a little bit better. And so, But really, in this culture, there is no difference. That's why Luke can say it was a delegation and Matthew can say it was this guy because it's exactly the same thing. It'd be like today if you went out and hired some, not that you would do this, but you hired somebody to kill somebody else, you hired a hitman, and they caught the hitman, the hitman gave you up, you go to jail for murder just like you committed it yourself, because what an intermediary does is what you do. That's what this kind of looks like. But I still think the centurion was standing there when the Jewish elders were talking to Jesus. It's still highly unusual. Now, today, when we read the Bible, we, we say things like, well, of course they'd go to Jesus to be healed. I, I would go to Jesus if he was around and I wasn't feeling good and I've had this cold for two weeks. And, oh, can you heal me? I would go to Jesus. But that's because you've read the Bible. You know who Jesus is. At this point in time, the, the stories of Jesus aren't that widespread. And so you have him preaching the sermon on out. Maybe it's going out and the centurion hears about who Jesus is, but they don't really know who he is. And so this would be more like today if you were a conservative going to someone like Obama or Hillary for help, or if you are a liberal going to Donald Trump for help. It'd be like someone who you would think isn't going to care if you even talk to them, or you think their culture is so backwards they don't understand really what's going on. But the centurion goes to Jesus. And, and in Luke, it shows you how odd this request is. Because the Jewish leaders say to Jesus in Luke 7, 4, and 5, He's worthy to have you do this for him. So they're making a case. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. So first off, the guy's worthy because of his works, and that somehow obligates Jesus to have to do something for him. See, religion's always been the same, right? You do, I did good works. God, you owe me. That's how religion works. But on the other side, it's also very unusual because the Roman soldiers are not in the habit of being fond of Jews or building their houses of worship. It's very convoluted, all the stuff that's taking place here. But the significance of this is not diluted by the goodness of this Roman. What you're meant to notice, coming out of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus heals a guy with leprosy who is an outcast. The next thing he does is he turns to a servant of Rome, a Roman, a non-Jew, who would also be considered an outcast. Jesus is showing he really was coming to seek and save the lost. Next week, he will go and he will heal Peter's mother-in-law. Like, what? Yeah, a mother-in-law. Nobody does that. (laughs) There's always this emphasis in Jesus and the scriptures of championing the needs of the outcast and the downtrodden. This starts in the Old Testament scriptures and comes to fruition in Jesus. True, real, genuine righteousness was something all the scriptures spoke about when referring to the coming Messiah. In Psalm 72, verses 12 and 13, it says, For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. The Messiah will come. He will take away our illnesses and infirmities. He will vindicate the widow and the orphan and the stranger in the land. And the stranger in the land at this point is that Roman. Jesus wastes no time in his ministry demonstrating he came to fulfill all of these things and more. So Centurion says, Matthew 8, verse 6. Say, I finally got to the next verse. We're good. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed, suffering terribly. And he, Jesus, said to him, I will come and heal him. So Jesus is like, 
I'll come to your house. This is unheard of. A Jew would not step foot in a Gentile's house. A Jewish teacher would not step foot in a Gentile's house. And yet it shows that God is coming to seek and save us. He's willing to go. Verse 8, But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go when he goes, and another, come and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. Both Luke and Matthew use this word, marveled. It's this Greek word, thaumadzo, and it means marveled or amazed to describe Jesus' response to what the centurion actually said. The only other time this word is used in the New Testament, it's in Mark 6, 6, and it refers to when Jesus is amazed at people's lack of faith. It's kind of showing you the difference between what he sees in the centurion and what how the rest of Israel displayed their faith. He's like amazed. This guy trusts in who I am. In this culture, the centurion is one of the most leak least likely to have any faith in Jesus. He's the least likely to amaze Jesus. He's a Gentile. He has a pagan upbringing. He's Roman. He is stationed in Palestine in order to subject the Jews to the laws and the whims of the Roman government. He is a man of war. He probably achieves his rank of centurion by killing people and maybe other Romans in combat to get to the place where he is. And yet he will be a shining example in Jesus' ministry of a person of faith, just like the person with leprosy was last week. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel, that's like a little dig, right? With no one in Israel have I found such faith. See, Jesus isn't impressed with titles or degrees or achievements like we are. His thing is, do you really trust me? Do you really trust me and my authority? Verse 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The centurion said to, and, and to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So you have this request by this Roman soldier on behalf of his servant. Yes, the servant is healed. Yes, there's all kind of ramifications of what's happening. But the focus of the story really comes down to the faith and the authority of what's taking place here. And it's the authority of the spoken word. More specifically, it's Jesus' spoken word. This guy understands authoritative power. He recognizes that Jesus has that authoritative power. It's that statement of faith that prompted Jesus to express this amazement, a faith unequaled in Israel. Jesus saw a contrast between the centurion's faith and the faith of Israel. Obviously, if you read the story, you see the centurion's probably a really good guy, right? I mean, at least in our definition, he's appealing to Jesus on behalf of a servant who is paralyzed and suffering. I mean, either this, this servant is wonderful and irreplaceable, or the centurion's a good guy, or both of those things together. But the request really speaks of his humility and his trust in who Jesus is. Again, he comes on behalf of a servant, comes to a Jewish rabbi, being a Roman commander. Roman commanders could actually commandeer Jews for certain tasks. Oh, I hear you're a healer. Come to my house and heal this guy. He could have thrown his weight around, but he doesn't. He doesn't. He goes and he humbly asks that Jesus would come and do this thing. As the story unfolds, you learn the servant was healed, but I also think the centurion was healed spiritually in a way because Jesus implies that this guy is going to be one of the Gentiles who will come and sit down in the kingdom of of heaven. And this again would have been unheard of to the people hearing Jesus say these things because there's no way a Gentile is going to be in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus just said, Yeah, this guy. It's because I think he understands authority. More specifically, Jesus' authority, which I think some of us still don't understand to this day. 
again, let me belabor this, centurion, non-Jew, Roman soldier. But he understands that he has less power over his life and that he was inferior and Jesus has all authority. His request was that Jesus would speak the word only. All you got to do is speak the word. He knew Jesus didn't have to come and see and do some song and dance. It indicates the centurion's faith. But it's only a tremendous faith because he considered the object of his faith powerful and the object of his faith was Jesus. You're in church, right? Come on. Jesus. There you go. There's a lot of passages where Jesus does work simply by speaking. He'll do healing and exorcisms and resurrections and calming storms. My favorite is that little thing that we call creation. Right? Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus' authority expands beyond simple healings. It's one of the basic attributes of deity. It is God who commands the light to shine in the darkness. It's God who commands the blind to see and the lame to walk and the deaf to hear. Nicodemus will say in John 3, 2, that no one can do the things that you're doing, Jesus, unless God was with you. But as you read the gospel accounts, you get further into the scriptures, you realize it's not just that God was with them. Jesus was God with us. He comes into our situation to rescue and save and redeem us. Now, the word here used for authority, the centurion uses, has a lot of different meanings in a lot of different contexts. In some contexts, it means privilege. It can mean simply because of who you are, certain things fall at your feet. It's why someone like Prince Andrew in in the UK can run an underage girl's sex ring and doesn't go to jail. It's why secretaries of state or presidents can do something illegal and they don't go to jail that we would all go to jail for. It's called privilege. Privilege. Uh, There's also, it means physical or mental power, depending on the situation, where the most powerful rule. Whether they rule a country, or if you're in jail, the most powerful still rule in a jail. It can also mean the power of rule, like you're a judge or elected official, or you're a king, or you pull Excalibur from the stone, or you have the one ring that rules them all. That's kind of what it means. Or, I think, as a centurion does here, it means universal power over everything. Because Jesus made everything, it all simply belongs to him. And when it comes to Jesus, that word has not just been translated authority, it's also been translated as power, strength, and jurisdiction. And the centurion is one of the few people who see and recognize that authority in Jesus. And there are so many people today who even call themselves Christians who don't recognize that authority in Jesus. I think it's why he says, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. See, the faith Jesus is praising, it's not, oh, he mustered up a lot of it. It's that this guy has confidence in the object of his faith, who was Jesus himself. One theological dictionary says, faith apprehends the facts. It assents to their truth and acts accordingly. It's not blind. It's that you know what the facts are. You assent to that and you live that out day by day by day. Here, the centurion had a certain amount of information about Jesus. And he accepted that it was true and he acted on it in confidence. And it's very important to understand that this strong faith also has a good part of it, this great and deep humility. He depends upon Jesus for all that he knew he couldn't do. One writer said this, Those who are self-sufficient seldom have the opportunity to develop faith like this. Those who think they have it all together, have all the answers, are never going to develop a faith like this. Jesus says, I have not seen such faith in Israel. Because I think what he saw is a lot like faith is today. It is, I think faith today is self-righteous and self-sufficient. It's people who, who will demand a sign from God to prove that he's good enough for us to let him into our life. 
It's we want a God who agrees with us, not a God who calls us to holiness, but a God who says, yeah, I'm your buddy. Do whatever you want. Buddy Jesus. You know, that, it, that, that's what we want. We, God, we want a God that sits a little bit lower than us so we can tell him what to do. We want to be a people who cry out for him when we're down and then we forget about him when things are good. If we stay down too long, it's like, well, yeah, well, God didn't work, so I'm going to go try something else. So what Jesus found so amazing about this guy's faith is the simple acceptance as Jesus as the sovereign commander in a military sense of all life and its aspects. He simply accepts the fact that Jesus had authority and he lives it. No matter what comes, I'm still going to trust him as having authority. Now, how this comes out and works out in our lives is, I think, how the book of Matthew actually ends. After the resurrection, Jesus brings his disciples together. This is what he says, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority, there's the word, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What this indicates is that Jesus now takes his authority that he has and he places it into the hands of his followers for the purpose that they would go out and continue to proclaim this message. We must be a people who understand that we are under his authority, but we have also been given great authority to be his witnesses into the world. It is why we can be called rich even when we're poor. Too many Christians are like that guy. I don't know if you saw this news thing came out a couple months ago. We're like that guy who had like the winning lottery ticket and he had it in his wallet and never pulled it out to check the numbers. It's like, that's so many, guys, you have everything you need for faith and life and godliness. And yet so often we crumple it up and shove it in our pocket and don't live it out. Greg Cooper tells the story of Christian Herter. Christian Herter used, in the 50s, he was the governor of Massachusetts. He ends up becoming secretary of state. One day he's working on his re-election campaign in Massachusetts and he misses lunch. And so he ends up at this church barbecue in the evening. He moves down the serving line, holds out his plate for the woman serving the chicken. And the woman serving the chicken, you know, puts a piece on his plate. She turns to the next person to serve them. And the governor's like, "Uh, excuse me, do you mind if I actually have another piece of chicken? I'm really hungry. And she says, sorry, supposed to be one per person. I need you to move along. And he goes, but I'm, I'm starving. I haven't eaten all day. The woman says, sorry, one to a customer. And now, from all accounts, Herder was a very modest and unassuming man. But apparently, he decided this time he would throw his weight around a little bit. So he says, do you know who I am? I'm the governor of this entire state. And the lady goes, do you know who I am? I'm the lady in charge of the chicken. (laughs) And she goes, you need to move along. (laughs) Do you know who you guys are? You're the people in charge of the chicken. Metaphorically speaking, you are. Jesus placed all authority in our hands to go and proclaim the gospel. And too often, as believers, we sit back and we hoard it, or we don't want to give it out. We we refuse to live out the grace that God has given to us as his people. We hoard it, but we're supposed to be giving it away. We need to be a people who live under his great authority. Because when we don't, when we don't see him as the authority over us, we're going to be defeated. When things feel hard, we'll think, well, God's not coming through for me. We'll be despondent. We'll live in a fatalism that just says, oh, it's always going to be the same. Not trusting that tomorrow doesn't have to be the same as today. Sometimes we'll live full of despair thinking everybody else has this life that we wish we had, but we're never going to have that life. And we just get really sad. 
we will begin to question God at every turn in our lives. We refuse to trust Jesus as being good if we do not see him as having authority. Really, the passage in Matthew, this story, it, re, it records this thing so we, I think, would see who Jesus is in his authoritative words. We call it a descriptive passage. It's showing you what happened with this centurion and with this servant and the idea of Jesus' spoken word of authority. I think Jesus can always do these things, but I don't think Jesus always necessarily does do these things. I think... I, you know, I, I think you look at the Apostle Paul, like I said last week, as a great example. The Apostle Paul had this thorn in his flesh his entire life. And he prays, Jesus, take this away, take this away. And what's Jesus' response to Paul? He says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Why? Because he wanted Paul to learn something as he went through this. And so we need to start praying like Jesus prayed, not my will but yours be done. And it's not a cop-out when prayer doesn't seem to work or things get hard. We pray with perseverance and trust and confidence because we acknowledge that Jesus is sovereign. We should be a people who build a faith like this into our lives. And you may say, well, how do I do that? Because the story doesn't really explain how you do that. But I think Jesus does. I think Jesus constantly reminds us how we begin to have a faith like this. And what he says is you're to have faith like a little child. How do children trust their parents? Implicitly. Until they turn teenagers, I know, then it's like, I hate you. But when they're little, kids just implicitly trust their parents. When I was little, I could barely walk, and my mom took me to Paul Nelson Pool and stuck me on the diving board and said, jump! You know what I did? I jumped. She's teaching me how to swim. Couldn't walk, but apparently I needed to swim. So I won't even jump off a diving board now, right? But then, yes, this is the idea of childlike faith. We implicitly trust Jesus in all that he says. You come to faith as an adult, what do you do? You start as a child. I think you, you read the scriptures, you read about who Jesus is, what he's done, what he continues to do. We get a community centered around the gospel with other believers. We get to see where they thrive and where they fail. I think the more we're in the scriptures and the more that we have fellowship with other believers and the more that we trust him, our faith will get put into action. We'll actually start then to hand out the chicken. Hand it out. I do believe that, that faith is also a, a, a gift, a, a spiritual gift, that some people just naturally have this greater propensity to faith. I think the centurion might have been one of those, but maybe that's not you, because I don't think it's me. What do you do when you have hurdles in your life where you have problems trusting? Maybe a faith has been broken with you from other people a lot. What do you do? You continue to trust Jesus. You put him in authority in your life and you trust him where he calls you to because the more you trust him, the more your faith will grow and the more you'll see how faithful he actually is. I don't think we will live in or understand true faith until we truly live under Jesus' authority, until we actually begin to live on mission and give ourselves away like Jesus calls us to. Jesus first gives himself to us as his children and then he sends us out to hand out, metaphorically, his chicken. We're supposed to be those who give that away. We're supposed to be those who trust him enough that he says, I've given you authority. Now go and live in it and share this and show everyone the goodness of God. And I think when we refuse to go and we refuse to live on mission, we refuse to share this and live this out with our family and our coworkers and our friends and our neighbors, I think our faith begins to diminish. I think it begins to, to crumple in on itself. Because we are not truly living in how Jesus called us to live. We're not truly living in his authority until we step out of ourselves 
and begin to give ourselves away. It's like the scriptures have always said, God says, I'm going to bless you. Why? To make you a blessing. Everything that I bless you with, I want you to turn and bless other people with. That's how we begin to grow in faith. We trust him. We trust him because he is the one who has sent us out to be that blessing. Guys, you have Jesus' authority in your life to go and be his witnesses. And I know sometimes we are horrible witnesses. I get it. I know. But he still rescues and redeems and lifts us up again and sends us out over and over because when people see how he has redeemed our mistakes and redeemed our lives, it speaks much greater to the goodness and the glory of God. We need to be a people who simply trust him and his authority. Because when we do, we will live out the life he calls us into. This is one of the reasons we talk about communion every week. You break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me so that we can be a people who can be brought home, that we are restored to relationship, that our great God adopts us back into his family. Our sins have been wiped away. We become his children and we get to live in great faith and hope under his good authority. The band's going to come up, as they do. We invite you to take communion, be some deacons in the back, and if you guys need prayer, maybe you're in a spot today where you feel like you don't understand Jesus' authority, you don't want to live underneath it, or maybe you do, and you just like someone to pray with you about that. They would love to pray with you about that. If you have anything going on in your life that you want prayer for, they'd love to pray with you about that. But I think our idea today is to remember to come back to the understanding of Jesus' authority. Everything that comes into our lives, in the end, God can use to bring about His glory and His good. You may have made some terrible decisions in your life that have led you to some horrible spots. It does not mean that God can't come in and make something glorious and beautiful out of your life. Because that's what He does. That's what He does. He takes us just where we are and changes into the people He intends for us to be. And sometimes it's not always that comfortable. Living under his authority means he has authority to call us and grow us and make us go where we need to go. And and we trust him in that. But he does restore and redeem because our God is good. There's offering boxes in the sidewall in the back and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's always a response to what he has done. There's food in the back. We invite you to grab something to eat. Someone made a big giant batch of homemade cookies last service. I mean, like, wow, someone's trusting Jesus' authority and doing the right thing there, right? <laughs> Grab something to eat, meet some other people, and maybe start talking through some of these things. Like, what, what, where is the hardest place for you to trust Jesus to have authority in your life? Where, when things get difficult, how quick are you to try and pull that back and hold on to it? To be like, I'm going to trust you, but not in this. I can't trust you in this. Where are those things? And where are the places where you've actually trusted him in your life and you've just been blown away by amazement because of how good he simply is? I think we need to be sharing these stories and talking about the goodness and the authority of our great God who loves us. As he loves us more than we could love anybody else, he loves us more than you could ever love somebody else. That's why we trust him first for his grace and love and we only learn how to love by starting where he starts. God's love is called unconditional. So we live in the hope and the grace of that, and he sends us under his authority to live and love and bless the same way. So hand out the chicken. That's what I want you to do. This week, remember when you're doing something, be like, oh, oh, man, that guy's such a jerk. Oh, wait, I'm supposed to hand out some chicken. And start handing out some grace and blessing 
and speaking of the goodness of God. Let people see the goodness of our God who has rescued us by how you bless them in their lives as well because that honors Jesus who has rescued and saved us. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would teach us how to be people who do stand amazed at the marvelous goodness of your grace, that we would understand the authoritative words that you have, that you have spoken into this world and you've spoken into our lives. You call us and draw us to you. And in that, I ask that you would have us begin to live under your great authority, that we would understand it better and better. So often, Father, when we hear the word authority, we want to think of somebody trying to put us under their thumb and, and hold us down, and yet your authority frees us. It frees us to be the people you intended for us to be. You grow us how you intend to grow us. You send us everywhere. So teach us to truly understand your authority, to truly understand your grace and your goodness, and to truly understand what our lives will look like when we find all of ourselves in your more than capable hands. Today, today begin the process in our hearts to break down all the places where we have built ourselves up and simply become a people who can set ourselves aside and put you as the one who rules and reigns in our lives over all things and that we would go where you call us to go and we would trust you and that you and all things would be glorified and lifted up and this is what we ask in your son's good name amen